0: You are listening to Help for HD Live, the first podcast created for families living with Huntington's and juvenile Huntington's disease. Don't forget to find us on iTunes, Blog Talk, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also search over 500 archived episodes and other projects at HelpForHD.org. To watch us in person, find Help for HD TV on YouTube and subscribe and ring the bell for notifications on new content. Help for HD Live is going on air in five, four, three two
1: Hello everyone, and thanks so much for tuning in to Help for HD Live. This podcast is made possible because of a grant from Teva Pharmaceuticals and the Griffin Foundation. I'm your host Lauren Holder, and today our guest is Dr. Thomas Bird, who has been with us before. Um, If you didn't get to listen to the show about his book, make sure to go back and listen on the Blog Talk Radio um, webpage, or you can actually find it on um, iTunes, Spotify, um, and iHeart. Um, Dr. Bird is a clinical neurogeneticist with interest in a wide range of hereditary disorders of the nervous system. In 1974, Dr. Bird founded the first clinic for adults with neurogenetic diseases in the United States. For more than 40 years, he directed this clinic at the University of Washington, where he saw thousands of patients and conducted pioneering research on conditions such as cerebellar ataxia, movement disorders, hereditary neuropathy, muscular dystrophies, and familial dementias. Over his career, he has been honored with numerous national awards and lauded for his discoveries about the genetics of hereditary neurological disorders, including Alzheimer's and Huntington's diseases. Although retired from clinical practice, Dr. Bird still actively researches genetic diseases of the brain and neuromuscular system, collaborates with molecular biologists and others on genetic projects, and mentors physicians and training and research fellows. He earned his MD from Cornell Medical College and is board certified by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. He lives in Lake Forest Park, Washington, just outside Seattle with his wife, Roz. Dr. Bird, thank you so much for coming on the show again with me.
2: I'm delighted to be with you again.
1: And um, so, this month we are actually doing um, a series called HD Mythbusters. Um, we have had a lot of information in Facebook groups that would come up where people weren't quite sure about the um, basically the basics of HD and the and the genetics and what CAG. Um, is and um, there's a lot of misinformation going around. So I really wanted to do an HD Mythbusters series to kind of um, address those issues and clarify, um, you know, some of the information. So this is our first show in the series, and so today we're going to be discussing CAG in HD. So Dr. Berg, could you? Tell us what CAG stands for and how does the CAG play a role in HD?
2: Uh, Right. Well, uh, if we back up a little bit, that will help explain where this uh, whole CAG name and mechanism comes from. Uh, As everyone knows, we inherit our genetic information from our parents. And that genetic information is contained on the chromosomes that we inherit from our parents. And those chromosomes are present in every cell in our body, including the brain. And those chromosomes contain long strings of DNA. Uh, And DNA, as everyone knows, represents the genetic code. So the DNA Uh, on the chromosomes is the actual code for genetics that we inherit from our parents. The purpose of that DNA is to tell the cell to assemble and make the proteins that all the cells in our body use to carry on all the biological mechanisms that are necessary for life and functioning. That DNA is a long string of chemicals uh, and the code is named after the first letter of the chemicals in that string of DNA. For example, if you have the chemical string that's cytosine, adenine, guanine, that's C-A-G, cytosine, adenine, guanine, that's the three chemicals cytosine, adenine, and guanine, CAG, and it turns out that codes for the amino acid glutamine. So that tells the cell to put glutamine into that important protein. And that glutamine is just one of more than a thousand strings of amino acid that make up the the protein that protein is known as the Huntington protein, and that's in every cell in the body. So the CAG stands for the three chemicals that code for glutamine in the Huntington protein. Now, the very interesting thing about that CAG is that normally in the DNA code, it repeats itself several times over and over again, C-A-G, C-A-G, C-A-G. It's as if you sat at your typewriter or your keyboard and typed in C-A-G over and over again, C-A-G, C-A-G, C-A-G. So it repeats, Uh, and normally in the human DNA code for the Huntington protein, the C-A-G sequence repeats itself anywhere from 10 to 20-some times. So that's called the CAG repeat, and it's normal. And so it's coding for several glutamines in a row in the Huntington protein. The problem is that in some people, there's an abnormal expansion of that CAG repeat Instead of just 10 or 15 or 20, there are, let's say, 45 CAG repeats, and it turns out that's too many. That codes for too many glutamines in the protein. The protein gets too big, and because the protein is too big, it's not able to function properly in the nerve cells in the brain. And that's what seems to be driving deterioration of no, those nerve cells, which eventually leads to Huntington's disease. Uh, and it's now been worked out that if you have up to 27 of those CAG repeats, that's perfectly normal. But if you have 40 or more, that's clearly abnormal. And that will lead to abnormal Huntington protein and individuals with 40 or more will eventually go on sometime in their life to develop symptoms of Huntington's disease. And you can have lots more than 40. You'll also notice that between 28 and 40, it's not clear exactly what happens. And that's called the so-called gray zone or intermediate zone. And we can talk about all of that as, as you develop uh, questions for me. But that's, that's the basic uh, sort of chemistry and genetics behind CAG and what the CAG repeat stands for. Is it, does that help?
1: It helps a lot. Um, so like my CAG repeat, um, when I got my genetic test, I have one normal one, which was 18, and then, My other one is 43, so that means that I will develop Huntington's at some point in my life because one of them is um, higher.
2: Right, and so when you get the genetic test for Huntington's done, you always get two numbers, and that's because one gene comes from your mother and the other gene comes from your father. So, for example, in your situation, the 18 came from your parent that didn't have Huntington's disease, and the 43 came from the parent that did. And because it's above 40, it means that if you live a normal lifespan, and by the way, that takes you into your 80s, a normal lifespan in our country is like 81 to 83 for men and women. So if you live a normal lifespan, sometime during that lifespan, you will develop symptoms of Huntington's disease. It does not tell you at what age that would happen. So that's something you have to be careful about. It doesn't really predict the age.
1: Okay. So that was one of my questions. Um, So the CAG repeat is not the only thing that matters when it comes to HD onset. Is that right?
2: That's correct. It, it, so it, co- it correlates with onset. If you take thousands of people who have the CAG repeat in the Huntington range, if you take thousands of people and look at their, the size of that repeat expansion versus their age of onset, there's clearly a statistical correlation. So if you have 50 repeats you're likely to develop it earlier than somebody who has 40 repeats. But for each one of those repeats, 42, 43, 44, there's a very big range. Uh, And the range is so big that for any individual number, you can't uh, predict Uh, somebody with 43 repeats. They could develop symptoms when they're in their 30s. Or they could develop symptoms when the, in their sixties. So it, it doesn't predict, but but in large numbers of people, there very clearly is a correlation: the bigger the repeat in the population, the earlier the average age of onset.
1: Okay, and that's and you know then we're going into juvenile Huntington's when we get to a, a high enough repeat. Um, can you see, let me ask you this before we go to that. Can you see juvenile Huntington's in the lower range of repeats in like the 40s to 45?
2: So that's a very good question. And what everyone agrees on uh, is that uh, juvenile onset is largely driven by very large repeats. And what's meant by very large repeats is 60 or greater. So in uh, people who have 60 or more, it's very likely that they will have juvenile onset. And the higher it is beyond that, it's often the earlier the onset. Can you get juvenile onset with a lower number? It's a very good question. And uh, the answer is yes, you can. It's not clear how low that number that two issues. It's not clear how low well the number can go and still be juvenile onset. And it also uh, addresses this difficult problem of, of what do you mean when you talk about onset? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so if you mean the movement disorder, the chorea, the involuntary movement, that's different from a behavioral or a psychiatric onset. So I can I can tell you that I have seen a young man who got his test done when he turned 18 years of age. And he already at that age had had several years of very serious psychiatric and behavioral change in his life from a normal childhood to very severe problems. And it was just like the kinds of early symptoms that his mother had. Uh, and so I, I felt he very likely had a, a juvenile onset sometime before the age of, of 18 of Huntington's symptoms. Uh, and his CAG repeat was 42. Uh, and that doesn't, that doesn't fit with what you read about in the literature. And so you have to sit back and say, is that, are those two things really correlated? Is he an example of a very early onset disease in someone with a fairly small repeat, or is it just a coincidence? Does he have some other behavioral or psychiatric problem that's not related to hunting? And so I don't know the answer to that. But there have been people with juvenile onset with CAGs in the 50s. So it, it can go below 60, but, that's, but all of those are exceptions. They're unusual. The other, the other side of the coin is when you get extremely high CAG repeats of 80, 90, 100. Those individuals may have onset before the age of 10. The largest repeat I have ever seen was in a little boy who had a number. His repeat number was somewhere between 140 and forty and one hundred and sixty. That's the largest I've oh. ever seen. And his onset was when he was probably about uh, two or two and a half years old. So you can get very big numbers and very early onset.
1: How are you able to tell onset that early? Like what what indicators would there be um, for that early?
2: So that, that's a very good question. And you really are dependent on the knowledge that one of his parents had the disease and had passed on uh, that uh, large expansion to the child. So his father, we knew his father had Huntington's disease. We saw him in our clinic. He had Huntington's disease, and he had 52 repeats. So he had a quite large repeat. So when we found his son had 140 and his son was having trouble walking, was having trouble learning and language, and soon thereafter developed seizures. Uh, mm. We felt we felt quite comfortable that this was probably juvenile Huntington's, and then he got a brain MRI, which showed atrophy of the caudate even at you know the age of four. So that all fit together, and we felt quite certain that we were dealing with very early juvenile Huntington's, but it would have been more difficult to put that together if we hadn't known his father was affected and his father had a fairly large repeat.
1: Right. So what other things would affect um, HD onset other than just the CAG repeat?
2: Right. So that's another great question. And, Huntington's researchers all over the world are dealing with that and trying to sort that out because it's obviously important. Somebody can have onset when they're five and someone else may have not have onset until they're 80. What is going on? How can you have such a huge range in age of onset? And it's clearly not determined just by that CAG repeat. So a couple of, of uh genetic chemical uh, modifiers have been found. One is actually within that CAG repeat expansion. It turns out that within that CAG region of DNA there's an area that's called an interruption, a CAG interruption and it stops the code Uh, and in some people they lose that interruption in the DNA And that's correlated with an earlier age of onset. Another thing that's been discovered is that there are other genes that people inherit that modify the age of onset. They've taken hundreds and hundreds of people with Huntington's and compared their genetic background with people who do not have Huntington's. And they found that there are other genes that, uh, the variants in those genes occur more frequently in certain age groups with Huntington's disease, and it's clear that those other genes are modifying the age of onset. And the interesting thing is they tend to be genes that have to do with DNA repair. So they probably are genes that are involved with whether or not that CAG expands. And so that makes sense that that would modify the age of onset. There probably are other things, uh, and they may not all be genetic. Uh, People talk about, for example, alcoholism or drug addiction. We have Mm -hmm. some examples where people who are known to have a CAG repeat, they seem to have had an earlier onset because they were an alcoholic or because they were a drug addict, and we're suspicious that those may accelerate the age of onset of Huntington's, but a lot of that is speculation. It's not, it's not clearly known or recognized, but those kinds of things could be playing a role and, and there may be others.
1: Well, and I think that's a good thing to point out too, that, you know, it's speculation, but there's a lot to back up, not even with just Huntington's disease with neurological diseases in general, um, that in other environmental factors such as alcohol or, or whatever can make a disease worse or um, or cause earlier onset. Um, so I, I think that's a really good point. Um, let me take you back for a second and let's talk about that gray area. So a lot of questions that I see surround that gray area that we call or the um, intermediate area. And a lot of people think that if you're in that gray area, um, you may or may not develop symptoms. And the other thing that I see is you may or may not pass on Huntington's. So can you talk a little bit about um, the gray area?
2: Yes. Uh, it's it's very important to discuss. It's it's tricky. And, again, it's one of those re areas of research where we don't have all the answers, but a a couple of things are pretty clear, and that is if your repeat expansion number is 35 to 39, that means you do have a chance of developing symptoms of Huntington's disease, but you also may not. Uh, And so you can live to be in your 70s and 80s and never develop the disease. But someone else with the same number, for example, 38, can develop disease. And when they do, with that kind of expansion range, they often develop it later in life. And I'll give you a personal example of that. We have a man we have seen in our clinic and he came to us with symptoms of Huntington's disease when he was 91 years old. And he probably had developed those symptoms, and it was mostly the, the movements, the chorea. he probably developed them sometime in his 80s. And he lived to be 93 and was still walking and talking and getting, along, getting on surprisingly well. And his repeat number was 38 so that's a perfect example of uh, a, a number in that gray zone that allowed him to live into his eighties before he developed symptoms, but he did eventually develop symptoms. So that, that's the kind of thing that happened. And if he had died, say, at age 75 with a heart attack or cancer, you never would have known that he had the gene for Huntington's disease. So hmm. that. Area Sort of 35 to 39 is called the, the range of decreased penetrance. Penetrance means when you have the abnormal gene, it penetrates to symptoms. And so if, it's, if your number is 40 or above, it said there's full penetrance if you live a normal lifespan. If your number is in the high 30s, it's called the range of decreased penetrance you may or may not develop symptoms if you live a full lifespan. And then, as you've alluded to, it even gets more complicated than that because what about with a number between 28 and 35? What about that number? Uh, And what's clear there is if you have a number in that range, almost never leads to symptoms. If you have a, if you have like a 29 or a 30 or a 31, if you develop symptoms of Huntington's, you would be reported in the research literature because that's so unusual. So it's really unusual. But if you have a number between 28 and 39, you will pass that on to a child. Child has a 50 50 chance of inheriting that number from you. And if it's the same number, which it usually is, it doesn't change what we've just said about it. But a tricky thing is that number, the size of that expansion doesn't always stay the same. It sometimes gets larger. It sometimes expands. So that means that if you have 36, repeats, and it's very unlikely that you will develop Huntington's, when you pass it on to a child, band up to 40, and then that child suddenly is in the range where they will develop Huntington's if they live long enough. So in that intermediate range, you're, you're, you have a 50-50 chance of passing that on to a child Uh, And what usually happens is it stays the same size, but it can sometimes get bigger. And even more rare, it sometimes gets smaller. But if it gets bigger, that will obviously change the risks that that child would develop the disease. So that's where it becomes very tricky. And you don't know what happens until you actually have the, the, the individual child of that person and you test them to see what happens. So you may have somebody, a parent, where their CAG repeat is 38, and they have an adult child who, let's say, is 35 years old, and you test them, and you discover that they have 41 repeats. So it's actually jumped between generations. It's jumped from 38 to 41. That sometimes happens. It's not common, but it does happen.
1: Okay. Let me ask this question. Um, And this is not one that I presented to you, but it's one that just crossed my mind. So what, say on your genetic test, you get um, a repeat of 40 and a repeat of 35. Does that increase the chance of of, um, an earlier HD onset because of having two um h d genes
2: right that's a, that's a, another you're coming up with great questions that's a really good question as you can imagine that doesn't happen very often, so right. there are not a, there are not a lot of examples of that, but there are examples it, it has happened and it's the, the, the the cases have been accumulated uh, and it does not seem to affect age at onset. Uh, so you would not, you, you would expect the person to have the age of onset that goes along with that, for, with the forty number, with the largest expansion. But it does mean that that individual's child will develop, will inherit one or the other. So the child of that person will get either their thirty-five or the forty. So the child ah. suddenly has. So the child suddenly has a hundred percent risk of having one or the other, and so that that's where very, it becomes very, very, good to know. very becomes very tricky and very important. You got to pay attention to that. But in the individual who has the two, it doesn't change their their Huntington's very much, and and it's it's no. There are people who have been reported who have. Two full huntington expansions you know they they have a forty five and a forty two so that has happened uh, and and fortunately they do not have particularly severe huntington's disease that's kind of surprising, uh, but they don't mm-hmm.
1: yeah very interesting um, you know to know that because i you know I've seen it come across, but um I've never had somebody completely answer it in that way to make it make sense so that's really good to know yeah um let me is there anything specific that you would want the Huntington's community to know about CAG that like you've seen um a lot of misconceptions on or misinformation on uh yes and
2: I think I think the biggest one is getting hung up on the idea that the, the, the repeat number that you get in your test tells you when you will develop the disease. People get very hung up on that, uh, and they, they, see, they see I've got 42 repeats, and the person sitting next to me in the Huntington's uh, convention tells me they have thir- 43 repeats, doesn't that mean the person sitting next to me will have earlier age of onset than I do. And, and that's just not the case. There's too, there's too wide a uh, variability with any given number. So people should be very careful not to get hung up on the number in terms of what it means in terms of age of onset. It's, it simply doesn't tell you that um, another tricky thing. And I think this, you've discussed this probably before on your show and that is, uh, you know, when do you test children? There's a lot of concern about that. So if, if you know a parent has the Huntington gene, uh, it's not unusual for parents to say, well, I, I, you know, I've, we've got two kids, and one's 10 years old and one's six years old, and we want them tested right now. We want to find out if they, have they inherited this or not. Uh, and the general consensus is that that's not a good idea if they're perfectly normal kids. Uh, because you're, you're, uh, you're taking away their opportunity to make that decision when they're adults. And you may also be labeling them with a stigma if the result comes back positive that you don't want them to have. But it's a common question of parents who want to get the test done as soon as possible for their, for their children. And, an, another and I'm
1: issue, so glad you yeah, brought that one up. Go ahead. <laughs>
2: yeah. Another issue is people who come and they say, uh, I'm, I'm 65 years old, and one of my parents had Huntington's disease, but I've read that you never develop it after the age of 60. So I'm off the right. hook, right? I don't, no, I don't need to be tested. And, pro- and probably 50 years ago, you would have agreed with them because it it wasn't recognized how late onset some people can have. But now that the genetic test is available and and elderly senior citizens have been tested, it it has become very clear that, yes, indeed, you can develop symptoms of Huntington's after the age of 60. Uh, And so if you want to know whether you're going to pass this on to your children or not or to your grandchildren, uh, you have you have to be tested to know whether you've inherited it or not. Even if you're 70, there's still a small chance that you may have inherited it and not yet be having symptoms.
1: Yeah, a very very good point, and definitely one I see a lot as well. Um, let me again, let me backtrack and ask this question too because it just popped in my head. Um, <laughs> so. What, how is Huntington's, this is one that I've seen, so Huntington's is 100% genetic. How is that different from Alzheimer's and ALS?
2: Right, again, a great question. So, yes, Huntington's is a specific disease of the brain that's always genetic, and it's, called caused by, it's always caused by a mutation in this Huntington gene. Uh, Alzheimer's and ALS and Parkinson's are different. They're different in that they're much more common than Huntington's. And at least Alzheimer's and Parkinson's are. ALS is not. But Alzheimer's and Parkinson's are much more common than Huntington's. And it turns out that those aren't distinct, uniform, absolute diseases. They are. There are a lot of different kinds of disease mechanisms that can lead to dementia and Alzheimer's and can lead to uh, Parkinson's disease. Uh, For example, people can be demented and it can be because they have vascular disease of the brain or they can be demented because they have what's called Lewy body disease. Uh, And so there are other causes of Alzheimer-like disease that are not necessarily genetic. So you can take a You can take a large number of people with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, and the vast majority of them do not have a genetic disease. But but the interesting piece is there are few people with those diseases who actually have a genetic disease. There are people with Alzheimer's. They're rare, but they have an autosomal dominant genetic form of Alzheimer's disease, just like Huntington's. And there are people with Parkinson's. Very rare, but they have an autosomal dominant genetic disease that causes Parkinson's just like Huntington's. So there are occasional examples of those diseases that are perfectly genetic, just like Huntington's. And then for Alzheimer's, there are genes that increase your risk for developing the disease. So it doesn't make Alzheimer's a direct automatic genetic disease you can inherit certain genes that increase your risk for it. So that's also an interesting category and that's different from Huntington's. So Alzheimer's can be not genetic at all. Alzheimer's can sometimes be purely genetic, just like Huntington's. And Alzheimer's frequently has a genetic influence where there are genes that can make your risk higher for it, but it's not a clear, absolute genetic disease like Huntington, And the same thing goes for ALS. The things I've just said about Alzheimer's and Parkinson's also goes with ALS. Most ALS is not genetic, but there are a few examples of ALS that are genetic, autosomal dominant, just like uh, Huntington's, so that you can have a genetic form of ALS and your children each of your children is at 50% risk to inherit the same thing. It's not common, but it does happen. It's known that about probably about at least 10% of ALS is genetic, just like Huntington. And in that genetic group of ALS, there's more than one gene that can do it. There are a whole bunch of genes individually that can cause genetic forms of ALS. So it's quite complicated. So when you hear people say, I thought ALS was not genetic, but I know a family that has a lot of cases of it. That's because ALS can be different from one family to another. And that's different from Huntington's. Huntington's is always genetic.
1: And it's always centered around this specific Huntington gene as well, even though other, now we're finding, you know, genetic variants that play a role and stuff. Ultimately, you have to have this repeat on this specific gene.
2: Right, that's right. And the, and the genes that I talked about earlier that modify it, they do modify the age of onset, but they don't cause the disease. It's always the a mutation in the Huntington gene that causes the disease.
1: Dr. Bird, I really appreciate you sharing all this information and um, kind of clearing up some big uh, misconceptions and misinformation for us. Um, thank you so much again for coming on the show today.
2: Yeah, it's tricky business, isn't it? It's not, it's, it's a little bit complicated. It's fascinating, uh, but it's tricky and it's important for people to, that's that's why we, we urge people who are in families with Huntington's to get genetic counseling because all these questions come up uh, and uh, most general physicians don't know all those answers. The Huntington's isn't common enough for a general physician to know the answer to all those genetic questions. And that's why genetic counseling and genetic counselors are really helpful and really important in uh, dealing with Huntington's families.
1: Absolutely. Um, and, and that's such a good point in that, um, you know, especially especially if you're in a Huntington's family, you already know and you have questions about it. There's information on the internet, yes, and we have these these podcasts, and we have um, YouTube channels and things that will explain, but it's always best to go to a genetic counselor to discuss with them, especially if you're you know if you're wondering about your personal family and how things affect um, how things affect you because it's not the same for every individual in your family, and that's something to remember um, mm-hmm. So genetic counseling is so, so important in Huntington's disease. And um, uh, I think one of the biggest things that we struggle with in the Huntington's community is we find out Huntington's is in our family, especially, um, you know, if you were like me, you found out when you were a teenager that it runs in the family. Uh, You've got a a mom or dad who's starting to show symptoms. You don't know what's going on. You start questioning things. And you go to the Internet and you start looking for information, and everybody's giving all this information. (laughs) So what do you know is, you know, true, what's not? And that's where genetic counseling can really play a huge role in um, getting that information straight towards where you need to ask those questions rather than getting just bombarded with a ton of information and not know what's true and what isn't.
2: Right. And another piece of that that's, that's well worth our mentioning is that it really helped, it helps people decide whether or not to get genetic testing. That's, that shouldn't be an easy question to answer. Some people who are in Huntington's families, their attitude is, boy, I'm going to get tested just as fast as I can. And other people say, I will never get tested. There's no reason to ever do it but in fact you need to sit down with somebody who's knowledgeable about all the things we've just been talking about talk it over and think about the the, the benefits to getting tested and the risks to getting tested and there's a lot to discuss their psychological their social their insurance their employment all of those things need to be thought about uh, and discussed before people jump into testing and the The best individuals that can help with that decision are genetic counselors.
1: Exactly. And that's one of the reasons that um, those of us in the Huntington's community really recommend, you know, genetic counseling if you're considering genetic testing. I know there, it's another subject that we're going to be talking about this month, um, about genetic testing and and misconceptions. And the genetic testing process and how, um, you know, there needs to be more consistency with um, genetic counseling instead of somebody just saying, hey, I want to get the test, and they call up their primary care physician or a neurologist and and get the results over the phone. Um, You know, that's a really tough way to deal with this disease and to deal with results. And um, a genetic counselor can really, really help with making that decision. And just because you go for genetic counseling doesn't mean you have to do the genetic test, but at least you're making an informed decision uh, when the information is presented to you. So very, very good point.
2: Yeah, exactly. And if you don't mind, I can put in a plug for my book because a lot of this is discussed in my book, the name of which is, can you help me? And uh, the the CAG repeats and the genetic testing and the risks and benefits, a lot of that is discussed in my book with a lot of examples of uh, positive and negative kinds of results. And so uh, if people are interested in delving into it further, uh, that's one thing they can do is take a look at that in my book.
1: Absolutely. And where can they get your book?
2: So uh, the easiest thing is to is to purchase it over the internet uh it it's available from Amazon it's available from Barnes and Noble uh and it it can it comes in uh, Kindle as well as hard copy and and any bookstore in your town if they don't happen to stock it which they probably don't uh can order it so it's it's pretty easy to get
1: yeah i got my copy off of Amazon and put it it's on my Kindle and it's awesome okay. so very easy to get to. Um, well, Dr. Bird, thank you again for joining me. Um, this I'm really excited about this series, and we're going to be delving in next week to the um, clarifying, basically, the quote-unquote stages of Huntington's um, and just kind of really looking into that side of, of the disease as well. So I hope that everybody will tune in next week. And um, have, I hope everybody has a great week. Thank you again, Dr. Bird.
2: Yeah, it was great to kick off the new year with this session. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening